Welcome to this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleague Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. I'm also here with our very special guest, John Mendelssohn, one of the most legendary music writers of the last, how many years shall we say, John? Four. Four years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or decades or millennia. Uh, let's just stick with the number four. Uh, welcome, John. It's an absolute joy to have you here. The um, pleasure is entirely my own, Barney. Hello, Mark. <laughs> Hello, John. <laughs> We're going to be talking with John about his own career, also specifically about Led Zeppelin and Kate Bush. Kate Bush is our featured artist of the week. Uh, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant are the audio interview from 1998 talking about walking into Clarksdale, their second album as Page and Plant, and we're going to kick off with an excerpt from that interview. Now, I I read on MTV online today that the album was named after a museum. No, not a museum. You know, we have to factor with this stuff all the time. You know, like biographies that are wrong and things like that. Yeah. What is it? Tell me what it is. Just a town. That's what I thought it was. Yeah. It's just named after a museum in Clarksdale. Oh, man. It's so dull, these people. That's a TV audience, babe. No, but I mean, if you listen to the song, Christ, it's got nothing to do with the museum at all. Right, right. I don't know where they got that from. I wonder if it was before they talked to you or they just, you know, deduced it somehow or if it was after they talked to you. Well, they probably went, Clarksdale, what's there? Right, right, right. Dunking <laughs> Donuts. This is a very short interview. Beginning of the interview, plants bemoaning, howling when told that Billboard are up next. And uh, in that one, as you hear, they were, they were mocking the fact that MTV thought they'd name the album Walking to Clarksdale after the museum in Clarksdale. Is that a blues museum? It's a blues museum. Um, so, so, yeah, that's that. So Clarksdale, Mississippi being one of the sort of, you know, fount of, of, of the Delta blues. So but It's just so typical of them, though. I mean, it, this is the sort of thing that distinguished their early career. They take that monkey song, they retitle it, and they slightly repackage it, and now we're asked to believe that it's some exciting new, new thing. And what monkey song? Well, last train to Clarksville. <laughs> <laughs> right, yes. I, 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 it, it just, that had, because that's Clarksville rather than Clarksdale, but um, nice try. Well, as I say, they retitled it in, in much the same way that they called it. Okay, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they stole from Howlin' Wolfheads. I think to put this into context, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, Jimmy Page uh, was the guitarist and founder and boss, really, of Led Zeppelin. Robert Plant was the singer that he recruited from the Midlands. By 1998, these guys had a real love-hate relationship, I think, uh, which you can't necessarily detect in the audio. Perhaps it's just not long enough. Well, I mean, you can can hear... Page turns up late, and you can hear a sort of vague undercurrent of irritation. Why is Jimmy late? Yes. Plant's voice. I mean, it's fascinating for me, and I should sort of declare this because I wrote an oral history of Led Zeppelin, and one of the things that becomes rapidly very obvious when you're researching that is that at this point in time, certainly, and probably 20 years ago, as when this interview was done, these two men really did not like each other very much. And it's it's a pretty open secret that the reason the 
Led Zeppelin reunion tour has not happened is because Robert can't stand being in the same room yeah. as Jimmy. Also, Robert can't hit the high notes anymore. Also, lots of things. But <laughs> I want to bring John in here because John plays a unique role in the Led Zeppelin story in that he reviewed not just the first but the second Led Zeppelin album for Rolling Stone and uh, horrifying as it may seem to some of you out there these were not positive affirmative reviews and John is one of the uh, few rock critics really who hasn't a good word I think to say about Zeppelin and their ilk yeah well in in many ways I, I feel that I should disavow what I what I said at the time. I mean, I did passionately hate them, but it was preposterous, really, that that I should be writing about them, because I didn't like. I ne- never liked the blues. I've never had any interest in the blues. Uh, I've always been about melody and uh, interesting lyrics. They had neither. So, what they did very well, you know, what they did very well was kind of. I missed it completely because key things that I always looked for in music were completely absent. Uh, decades later, when I resumed playing the drums, you know, I, I, I hear that early stuff and I I marvel at Bonham's playing just from the standpoint of of the, the brilliance of the rhythm sections playing. It's, it's, it's quite notable, but, you know, as I say, just very, very far from my own taste. Uh, so I, I wrote sort of a, an extremely dull, sober review for my college newspaper, and then Rolling Stone published it. And then I discovered that they were so irritated, Led Zeppelin were so irritated, that they, were, that they threatened me from the stage of the Anaheim Convention Center, which delighted me to a great extent you know <laughs> uh, you know i felt i felt myself becoming more famous yes I, you were I, almost I, famous yeah indeed and I, I enjoyed that feeling so then when i was asked to to review the second one i went into full smart ass mode and just you know like ridiculed them uh mercilessly to my discredit i i, I don't know if it's to your discredit john because I mean, I'm always had a very ambivalent relationship with Led Zeppelin. There's bits of them I've really, really liked. Uh, I go through jags now of listening to them for a great deal and then not listening to them for months on end. And they were overblown and pompous and a lot of the things that, that you said. And also they appealed to a type of audience that I suspect you and I would both, to some extent, despise the quaalude swilling. Um, Can you swill a quaalude? Well, you know. With beer. You have. Well, with you, beer. <laughs> I've, I've found that you can if you liquefy it first. But, uh, yeah, the thing is, I mean, it, I, I, feel, I feel a certain amount of uh, embarrassment about really everything I wrote because it, it, it's become more and more apparent to me that, you know, pe- people nowadays object to the fact that you, you, you don't really see anything but positive reviews. Mm. And they, they think that that's uh, a degradation of the form. Well, in some ways, it's, I've come to see music criticism as, as kind of really a very silly thing to be doing in the first place by virtue of the fact that 
I can't explain why I enjoy the things I do. If if somebody, if in 1969 when I did that writing, somebody enjoyed listening to to screechy screechy blues and a guitarist wildly overplaying as as Page always did. <laughs> Why is that less valid than my liking uh, Stephen Sondheim? I mean, it, that which hits, hits somebody else's musical G-spot and doesn't hit mine is perfectly yeah. valid for them and for for, for me to... I, I have to say, I, I, so I, my job means I read the stuff all day, every day of the week. And there's nothing more boring than a good review. I absolutely relish bad reviews they make me roar with laughter and I have to say I was this is a question for you John when you were writing for the LA Times did your editors ever take you to one side and say listen John do you actually like rock music because <laughs> <laughs> no John Landau who went on to manage Bruce Springsteen said that <laughs> I, mean, I, said, I, think, well, I was slightly shocked because I can't remember who it was, but I read a review which was positive. Young it was a me. Neil Young and Crazy Horse yeah, review yeah. that we added about three weeks ago. And it stopped uh, in my tracks. He yeah. likes it. We were all in shock. <laughs> Not just the band. Mendo likes it, something. But also the audience. You've, you're fantastically vile about the audiences. I, I'm personally, I adore that stuff. I mean, I can understand why you're sort of, you know, backing away from it. But from my standpoint as a consumer, it's... Fabulous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's much more interesting to to read that stuff. But you know, I mean, hurting people's feelings. And um, I have a you know, I have a lot of my own music on SoundCloud. And a few months ago, I looked at I, you know, I don't go to it periodically. You know, I, I do check Facebook every ten minutes to in hope that somebody has liked something <laughs> I've said, but but not with SoundCloud. And I discovered that some guy had listened to all every song that I had on SoundCloud, and about ten seconds into each one, he 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 commented, "This is crap. How do you come off insulting Led Zeppelin?" Forty-five years after the fact. <laughs> but I do. I, I think it's worth interjecting at this point that um, even if you wrote something bad about Led Zeppelin now, they really couldn't have cared less. Whereas back then, the the power that the music price had, this this group that became such a giant well, the mythical, band, the mythical part. Of it, but think. but that your reviews did really sting with them, particularly with the very thin skinned Jimmy Page, and uh, it sort of set up a real kind of animosity between Led Zeppelin and and the press. I mean, there's this great story of. Uh, uh, Peter Grant calling the offices of the, I think, New Musical Express, no, uh, um, IT, mm-hmm. International Times, and Jonathan Green, who'd written uh, a not very good review <laughs> of, of, I think, Led's Up in Two, heard this menacing voice on the other end of the line saying, Do you use your fingers for typing? <laughs> and it, it was P- Peter Grant, um, the, the, the manager. Um, and they really did hate depressed and it may have been partly because they couldn't believe you could be so impolite about their work at that at that early stage but, but barney it didn't stop them selling millions of records and so of i of course I, you, not the, you know, the power of the press has always been massively overstated when, you know. absolutely absolutely I, you know I've, I've come to believe and to recognize in my old age that even even in the days when rolling stone wielded the most power the only rock critics, if you will, and, and they didn't call themselves that, who mattered, were the program directors at radio yeah. stations. Yeah. I mean, the, the, what, what 
Lester Bangs might have written in Rolling Stone or John Lando be negligible in comparison to mm. judgments being made by people whose names you would never know behind yeah. the scenes. Yes. I think it's worth saying something about this audio interview in that it really does demonstrate the great difference between these two guys, between Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. Robert dominates the interview, um, as one might expect, and he's always loquacious and eloquent and amusing. And occasionally, Jimmy sort of grunts something um, in, in his sort of slightly train-spotterish way. In, in his entirely fake sort of working-class accent. Plant told me once, I remember, I mean, I love this story, that he said, he said that the problem with Led Zeppelin is that there were two Capricorns in it, and of course Capricorns have no sense of humour. And the Capricorns were Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones. So there was this interesting schism within Zeppelin, which was these two guys from the Midlands who both did have a great sense of humour and then Jimmy and John Paul Jones who were Southerners and and really were were a little bit kind of dour Mm -hmm. in their way in their way John, let's talk a little more generally about about your career. I mean, I routinely tell people that you are the funniest writer on popular music that I've ever read, and I absolutely stand by that. I don't think anyone has ever come close in terms of you know splitting my sides. Uh, I, genu- I, I genuinely weep with laughter reading um, many of the pieces you've written right through your career, but particularly the very tongue-in-cheek things that you've written over, I guess, what, the last 10, 15 years. So you are the featured writer on the homepage this, this week in our, in our almost famous section. And one of the pieces that I've chosen is, is one I remember reading for the first time very well, because it was pretty much when we were just starting Rocks Back Pages, yeah. and you wrote it, I think, for us, or at least offered it to us, and it is an absolutely hysterically funny piece about a Wishbone Ash tribute band called Ashbone You Wish, and it's, it's just written in such a brilliantly deadpan style can you remember writing can you can you tell us about when you hit on that particular mode of ironic appreciation of the absurdities of of rock culture i think i i hit on it very early on uh i do remember writing that particular piece my my soon-to-be wife was going to a hem party that night in london leaving me alone in her in her dismal flat in Rainer's Lane, <laughs> northwest London. I had to amuse myself somehow and so began thinking about the, the, these tribute bands and I thought, what a what a remarkable... Well, now, of course, there's nothing but tribute bands. Even the bands themselves. <laughs> Tributes to themselves, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've always enjoyed the idea of... of as, British people would say taking the piss. You know, the, the, there was a sort of a famous, a famous review in Rolling Stone in late 1969 that, that Gabriel Marcus was was very pleased of, where he'd invented this group called the Mass Marauders. That so it, it sort of sprang from that tradition of, of just making something up, and and Cream was good at that too. I mean, they had one guy. Oh, and R- Richard Meltzer. Uh, it would would never actually I was would famously never actually listen to to that which he was reviewing. He would just talk about going to the 
grocery store and having somebody being rude, rude to him. Uh, I always, as I, as I said earlier, I always, I always felt sort of embarrassed about what I was doing, even though I liked the fact that it made me rich and famous and, and got me laid. Um, <laughs> so the, the idea of, of making fun of it always, always seemed like a, a worthwhile thing. Didn't they actually exist, Ashbone, you wish? There was a... Because after we ran that... They did. It was a real group. They it came, was a real group. They came back to us. Complaining. vociferously About your right up. Yeah. They felt they hadn't been taken sufficiently <laughs> seriously. <laughs> and I... God, I really hope that your response was... We stand by what our elders <laughs> Of course it was, John. In, Sa- in San Francisco at one point, this this guy who called himself Johnny Angel uh, came and interviewed me about a the- uh, my one-man show, my one-man theatrical show. He took no notes and made no recording, went back to the San Francisco Bay Guardian, wrote a piece completely full of fabrications and lies, making me out to be a bigger jerk than I actually am. When I went to the San Francisco Bay Guardian and, and said, you know, he, he's quoted my book here. If you can show me where in the book I actually said this, I'll give you every cent I've ever earned or ever will earn, because it wasn't in there. And they said, we'll stand by what a writer said. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the other two pieces uh, that we've included here, uh, are an early review of Jefferson Airplane. Well, I mean an early in terms of your writing career, 1969 at the LA Forum. It is wonderfully disdainful of the sort of posturing <laughs> of Grace Slick and Marty Balin. So th- th- there's an early kind of taste of of your style there, which is wonderful. There's also the interview you did in 1971 for Rolling Stone with David Bowie. Um, I believe that was his first visit to the States. It was, yeah. And... Um, I think I, I'm right in saying that you you became, I mean, if not firm friends, he became a supporter of yours. He said nice things about the band that you then formed, Christopher Milk. He was a supporter of he Christopher Milk. We, we ran the audio of a, a press conference that he did in 72 in New York, and s- someone asked him, what about Christopher Milk? He said, yes, I've heard them. <laughs> yeah, you, get, you did get a name check in, in, in that audio interview. Um, so... Um, Maybe just tell us a little bit about Bo. You write very eloquently at that point about what he represents, um, the artifice, the theatricality. This is something new. Uh, I think it was just on the back of the Man Who Sold the World album. Um, so reminisce, if you would. Well, he essentially interviewed himself. I, I was, uh, I was, I was terribly intimidated. He was, he was very smart, and. He was really pretty. He was unnervingly pretty, and it, and you know I, w- I was feeling tinglings that I hadn't felt before. And we, were, I thought, we were at the ambiguous stage of your sexual development. <laughs> no, I was. You know, I'm an American boy, and I was dead set on being 110 percent heterosexual. But you know, I was troubled by these by the fact that I found him really pretty, and uh, he was he was playing to it too. I mean, he he saw it, and he was he was he was being very. Effeminate, and it, the, the whole thing served. Was he to, wearing a dress? Of course, yes. yes. He was wearing the dress. <laughs> well, then what, you can what, be forgiven. What, he was pretty, and he was wearing a dress. What does one wear to an interview? His his frock. So, yeah. So I, I just sort of sat there and and uh, occasionally mumbled 
mumbled something incoherent, so he, he asked all his own questions and then answered them. And Perfect. He, yeah. The same Perfect. thing happened to me with Mick Jagger. Uh, I met Mick Jagger. Uh, Disc and Music Echo sent me to interview him. And he was he was disarmingly cordial and sweet and welcoming. And I, I was so taken aback that I sort of let him interview himself. You know? I mean, we, we, this week we were running a Robert Duncan interview from 78 from Cream with, with Bowie. And a very similar sort of thing takes place because actually Duncan went in pretty sceptical and not not a fan and is utterly disarmed by Bowie you mm-hmm. know and he comes out sort of saying what a nice man mm-hmm. <laughs> you know very much yeah and he, he the same thing happens as Bowie starts interviewing himself because Duncan is unable to formulate questions mm. yeah um before we talk about uh, uh, Kate Bush we're definitely going to bring you in on that John I, I would just like to sort of say that uh, there is this sort of pantheon of music writers, uh, especially in the States. You know, one thinks of the so-called noise boys, the unholy trinity of, of Richard Meltzer and Nick Toshis and Lester Bangs. You're somewhat excluded from that. You weren't part of that gang. You didn't run with those lads. But I think people who really are in the know and know their, their music uh, writing their rock criticism would say you you are as important as as any of them but you've always been very much your own man you've always gone against the grain I think you've never taken things as seriously as the likes of Grill Marcus have you know you you are an utterly singular presence in this in this story don't give How- me too much credit barney i'm not i'm not nearly as smart as Greel. if i if i could make the connections he makes in his writing i, I think you I, are as smart you're much more fun to read you are much more fun to read um you know humor is 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 so incredibly important and we can't take any of this stuff too seriously even if you know music does move us and redeem our sorry existences and and uh, but i mean do you are you how do you see yourself in the context of the kind of evolving story of music journalism well i'm i'm sort of, as as i say i'm sort of embarrassed by the whole thing and i I don't like to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, it, it's interesting that you, that, you, that you mentioned that that triumvirate and my being apart from them. They were they were deeply appalling people. It was very very easy. Well, I I didn't know Tosh as well, but Richard Meltzer came over to my home in West Hollywood at one point with uh, another music writer. Tom Nolan, who was mm-hmm. who was very good indeed. Very good. We have him on RBP too. I'm glad to say. They both had colds, or pretended to have colds, and they they uh, expressed their opinion of you know their admiration for me by littering my flat with with used uh, facial tissue. I mean, they they were being sort of as, as obnoxious as possible, which was you know what was what Meltzer was known for. You would. The, the record company would invite you to this lavish do. You would attend and stuff yourself with, with the, the canapes, yes. And then you would pee in the punch bowl to, to express your disdain for the whole idea of... Canapes. For the whole idea of, <laughs> of the record company having invited you in the first place. I so they were hypocrites. They were... Yeah, they yes. were ghastly. He, they were ghastly people. So, I mean, I, I, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't difficult to... 
to not want to be associated with him. You do strike, there's a bit of Groucho Marx about you, John, in that you absolutely would never join any club that you were invited to be part of. Is that fair to say? No, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do have extremely high opinions of other bits of, of other things I do this isn't one of them <laughs> <laughs> well we love everything you do actually um, I mean uh, the one thing is missing from those three I mean I loved the unpublished piece of Playboy Poison the Hood the NWA story where I, I believe you said that it wasn't published because Hugh Hefner imagined shrewd night's boys turning up on his doorstep with baseball bats but no it's much it's much more <laughs> prosaic than that they, they had a piece by or about Ice tea, yeah, and somebody said, "Well, we've got too much gangster rap." Well, it's a great. It's a great piece. It's in. It's in. It Ro- is a terrific. It's in piece. the Rockstar Pages Library, and uh, I'm and also in a, the, the first book we ever did, which is God, sort of so last century now, almost. <laughs> isn't it? Uh, the Sound on the Furious, an anthology we did with Bloomsbury. I think we were given some of the crumbs off the Harry Potter table to put together an anthology of music writing and your piece was was one of the the centerpieces of 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 that collection why don't we talk about kate bush you've written about kate bush you wrote an extraordinary book about her called certainly in this country waiting for kate bush i wanted to call it inside kate bush Oh dear, are we allowed to say that, Jasper? Um, all right, Inside Waiting For, tell us a little about that book and why it's such a favourite with the, the, the Bushettes, the, the vast global community of Kate's fans. The, simple is a, the, the story is a simple one, Barney. I was offered some money. Uh, <laughs> Damn. The guy, the, guy, the editor at, at Omnibus Press had a list of people he wanted books about most of whom I, I hadn't heard of, others of whom I loathed. I, I, kinda, I had liked Wuthering Heights. I was going to make some money, and I said, by golly, I'm in. I'm on board the, <laughs> the, the Bush Express. The, re- the record shows that at the same meeting, I, al- I said the same thing about the Pixies, writing about whom was uh, an absolutely excruciating experience because it required me to listen to their recorded output. I mean, your Pixies book is, if anything, even more notorious, isn't it? Um, I, and, and detested by, by, <laughs> by the fans of, of of Fat Francis or whatever his name is, yeah. Black Francis. <laughs> well, it might be. I mean, I, year, I, I realized years after the fact that had I pretended to like them, and really, what did I have to lose? I, you know, my my integrity, you know, my reputation, it, it might have sold more. You know, I. I can write fiction. I, I could have pretended to be... Well, I did. You know, half of it was fiction because I, had, I, I couldn't fill up the, the book. I couldn't meet my, my word requirements. So I wrote a, a story about a woman who was a, a, a Pixies fan and didn't make any value judgments about it. No. Because I know some people love it. Mm. Absolutely. They're certainly among the more unorthodox biographies in the rock canon, shall we say. Let's go back to, you said you liked Wuthering Heights. Now, sort of one of the reasons that 
I wanted to do something about Kate Bush, who's uh, selected or collected lyrics are published this week by Faber in their in their series. They've done Van Morrison, I think they've done Ian Curtis and, and, and a few others. So it's Kate Bush's turn this Christmas, How to Be Invisible, I think with an introduction by the crime writer Ian Rankin. You said you liked... Um, Wuthering Heights. I actually really didn't like Wuthering Heights, and I thought that this was a novelty act, um, and she would just sort of disappear like so many people who got to number one in England did. I hated it so much that I didn't listen to her for two decades after it was released. (laughs) But then what happened after that was I started to hear things on her albums. There's a track called uh, Them Heavy People on Never Forever that really caught my ear in that year. I think it was was 78, 78 probably that year. What we've chosen to do uh, with this Free on RBP feature is to focus on the Dreaming album, which I think is one of the most extraordinary records ever made. It was her third album, and it really was Bush just cutting free of any commercial preconceptions or requirements. There were no hit singles on it. It's utterly batty, utterly compelling, extraordinarily exciting and beautiful music. Um, So there's two reviews of the album that came out at the time. Some of the reviews were very baffled. Uh, Melody makers Colin Irwin and John Young in America for Trouser Press were, were... were very approving and there's two interviews about and around the making of the album by Mick Brown the Guardian and Richard Cook in the NME um, I think it was that album and then the subsequent stuff she did Hounds of Love Running Up That Hill etc Central World that convinced me certainly by the end of the 80s um, that, that Kate Bush was about as brilliant as any artist it had ever been produced in pop music, and I still believe that. It was actually having a very nice young woman called Kate was working with us at Roxback Pages about three or four, four years back, um, and uh, she was a huge Kate Bush fan. She'd be playing Kate Bush in the office, and I started listening to it thinking, this is really bloody good. But I'm afraid combination of Wuthering Heights and the fairly ghastly promo video that show on top of the pops with her doing sort of fifth form music and movement class sort of moves. So the obvious question is, my tracks. <laughs> the obvious question, John, is, is did you like anything after Wuthering Heights? Yeah, uh, I can't tell you the title. There, there's a song about where she's standing on a balcony in New York. Do you know that one? Wasn't that every video made in the 80s? That could be, <laughs> but uh, it was—I I think it was a song dedicated to her, her late mother, and it, it's devastating. I mean, yeah. it just—it floors me. I mean, a lot of a lot of it, it straight, you know, that she went through what sounded to me like a Munchkin fra- phase that I found deeply annoying. You know, where the she was singing in a register that she shouldn't have sung in because it sounded like squeaky. It sounded comical. Mm-hmm. That was that was deeply annoying, but. I mean, when she hits it, when she nails it, she nails it to the wall. <laughs> I think her, you know, body of work, to use that ghastly term, it stands up incredibly well. I mean, how do you look back on your book now? The thing was that the deal I made with, with Omnibus Press was that they acknowledged that she didn't talk to people. So I said, you know, I've got this novel in the works. How about if I incorporate whatever biographical material I'm able to put together into my novel? So I'm, I'm to the extent that I remember it, I'm reasonably proud of the of the, the novel part, 
and the the rest of it, you know, is filler. Yeah, I mean, I I tried to write it entertainingly, and I tried to occasionally I I aspire to an interesting insight, but I don't I don't know if, if there are a great many of them. Thank you for your thoughts on on Kate Bush. We're now going to talk about some of the new pieces that have been added to the Rocksback Pages library, again, for subscribers. So I'm going to hand over at this point to our chief archivist, Mark Pringle. (laughs) Fairly swiftly. um, Starting in the 60s, uh, again, Dawn James, as you all, regular listeners know by now, is one of my favourite writers, interviews Manfred Mann, and you realise kind of really what a rather unpleasant man Manfred Mann is. He was a self-important, pompous blowhard, and it does rather come through. Very nice profile of the wonderful mover and shaker Georgia Gamelski by Geoffrey Cannon from The Guardian in 69. Tony Cummings on Gamble and Huff and Black Music 74, Mostly for me, for the information I really didn't know, I didn't realise that Leon Huff had worked for Libra and Stoller in New York and actually learned a lot of what he knew about production from working with them and Phil Spector. So there's a kind of very nice line through Phil Spector through to Philadelphia Soul. Did he play on records? Oh, he did. He, he, played, did, he yes. played piano. Piano, on exactly. A Blue Oyster Cult Motorhead Live, reviewed by Jeff Barton and Sound 75. Jeff Barton's hated Motorhead Love Bloist Cult. I went to that show. It was about Motorhead's third ever show. Memorable for Larry Wallace, then Motorhead guitar player, trying to tune his guitar with his fuzz box on, and the whole Hammersmith Odeon saying, up, up, down, down. I have no memory of Bloist Cult and remember Motorhead vividly, um, which probably says more about me than I've Bloist Cult. Blue Oyster Cult, it's worth mentioning, of course, were. Um, co-produced by another of the what one one might call kind of gonzo era critics one of the earliest writers in that idiom uh contemporary Meltzer wrote for crawdaddy paul williams's magazine sandy palman um sandy palman and murray krugman were the co-producers of the blue oyster cult and some other acts and of course combat rock by the clash um sandy i think was did you ever meet sandy palman no, never. I mean genuinely brilliant. I think um, in 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 the way that sometimes Meltzer could be brilliant, and certainly Bangs could be brilliant. But but in this in extremely kind of irreverent way and uh, subjective Gonzoid sort of style, it was all post new new journalism. Sandy died, I think, last year. Um, we're going to try and get his stuff on Roxback Pages one day. But um, I have to say I was a big Blue Oyster Cult fan. Uh, yeah, I, I, I liked Mo Kent until I saw him live, and I found him so tedious that that was the end of my relationship with the Blue Oyster Cult. I like the fact that there was sort of wit there, and it, that was partly the impression. It was no wit live. It was no just, wit it live. It was just a lumbering, boring bunch of blokes with guitars around their necks. So, <laughs> uh, moving on, Night 76, a delightful profile slash interview by Michael Watts with Kate Nan and McGarrigal. Uh, Kate McGarrigal at that time was still married to Loudon Wainwright III. Um, uh, and she's quoted saying, Loudon's the only person I've gone up to and said, I really like your music. Needless to say, I won't do it again. Uh, it, it turns out that that year they divorced. <laughs> I think that gives it some context. Well, we wouldn't have had either Martha or Rufus Wainwright. Well, indeed, in fact, she was her pregnant her. with Martha at the time. Right. And I believe Martha was born after the divorce, but I could be wrong about that. Interesting... Um, Baltimore's son, Jeffrey Himes' piece on a Temptation's attempted reunion in 1982, uh, which is just sad because the whole thing fell to pieces because Ruffin is one of the people interviewed in the piece, 
uh, basically started missing shows because of his drug problems. <laughs> Two more things. Um, Sean O'Hagan went to Jamaica in 92 with Massive Attack and Horace Andy to shoot a video. I think they all thought they'd go to some idyllic heaven of reggae sound systems and sunshine. And they walked into the hell that was Kingston in 19... 19- uh, 92 of cocaine, of, of murder, of, uh, and a frankly terrified Sean O'Hagan recounts this rather splendidly. Mm. And the last piece is the wonderful Gary Lucas, uh, Beefheart's last guitarist before Beefheart's retirement, interviewed by Mike Barnes for The Wire. Um, personally, I, I, I fascinated me because I think that um, some of the areas of int- music I'm interested in at the moment sort of very much coincide with that. So that's a uh, personal thing. So that takes us up to 2000. Anything after 2000, Barney? Well, I, do, I wanted to note, actually, just backtracking slightly, to, to, to that very early piece that you added about In Excess. Um, yeah. Which, uh, so Clinton Walker is one of the Australian writers we have on Rock's Back Pages, and uh, whereas In Excess didn't really make waves here till, you know, 80 what sort of seven i would say um is what i'm thinking 88 87 so this is a really early piece uh yes uh, though interestingly they were making waves in america right at this point i mean this i had no idea reading that piece they've already toured america twice and we're starting to become a sort of significant factor in the states whilst in the uk they really meant nothing at that at all, and they've already done three albums by that time. They had, I mean, it's, it, yeah, exactly. They formed late seventies, so this is nineteen eighty four. But it's by some distance the earliest yeah. pieces we, we, we've got on them, and it's it's certainly one of the things that I think gives us satisfaction is to find, find early stuff, early stuff on artists. Yeah. It's interesting also that that that, that, that um, Clinton expresses a certain scepticism towards Hutchins and what he represents, and in a curious kind of way, it prefigures the way that in excess were regarded and treated by, certainly by the music press in this country. They were never loved by the press. There was something about in excess which sort of put, you know, caught in some journalism. I threats. found them utterly bogus, I have to say. My first wife spent the summer of 88, as I recall it, playing the Kick album repeatedly, and it drove me nearly insane. <laughs> I just did not care for them. I thought they were, they were, they were just complete poseurs um and it's music that doesn't stand up for me but very sad end to you know michael hutchinson's life well look a, a couple of weeks back we ran on rocks back pages sean o'hagan's piece in the observer i think about two weeks after hutchinson's mm. death mm. going into the whole thing about bob geldof it was basically about bob geldof and how he's been sort of torn from his throne as st bob uh and it was very much about hutchinson's relationship with uh Paula, Paula, what's her name? Paula Yates. Paula Yates. <laughs> no, we can't say that. Uh, it's definitely Yates. Um, so, well, finally, post post two thousand, um, a couple of things uh, just to note on passant. There's a live review of uh, Ariana Grande, or however you pronounce her name, at the O2. You know, pre the atrocities in uh, in Manchester so it's Lisa Verica reviewing Ariana for the Times um, and you know essentially saying she's she's a great pop star however formulaic it all mm-hmm. seems um, and then finally I would just like to note we've we've added a, a lovely Bill Miller you know tribute slash obituary to the late Cliff White whose audio interviews we've been featuring of late mm-hmm. um, one of the last things Cliff did before 
passing away was to let us know that he wanted us to take uh, custody of all his tapes, mm-hmm. which include incredible interviews with everyone from Marvin Gaye to Jerry Lee Lewis. And I think we added uh, Smokey Robinson yeah. the other day. Yeah. Um, so Cliff was one of the... the Eddie James last week. Eddie James last week, indeed, indeed. And, it's, and he's a great interviewer. And he was a lovely man. I knew him pretty well. I certainly read him from an early age. He was... Uh, he was one of the few writers for NME who knew their stuff yeah. when it came to soul music R&B. So, you know, there was a Bobby Womack cover story. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking maybe it was 76, but it might have been earlier mm-hmm. than that. Um, Bill Miller, who is another of the the great writers on black American music. Um, and we've had Bill's stuff on RBP yeah. for many years, has written this lovely tribute. Yeah. What's great about the tribute is that he sort of places both himself and Cliff and one or two others as these white soul boys, R&B fans from the early 60s, going to all these clubs. You, you get people like Coast Redding playing in a small club in Brixton. I mean, it was extraordinary. American artists coming over. And these guys were just obsessive. They were hoovering up. They'd see each other kind of five times, you know, ten times a month, going to see shows. Um, he, uh, Cliff had a job at um, HMV where, where he managed to find a way of actually basically stealing records in large numbers and handing them out to his friends under the guise of the friends being reps from some record company. That's correct. <laughs> they, 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 Bill says that they would walk in and, and, and shout, Polydor sales rep! <laughs> <laughs> come down and hand them all these records until somebody got wise. Yeah, he, he left the job before he could be fired, but um, yeah, it's a very very nice tribute. Yeah, it is. It's it's lovely. And Bill Bill's just a delightful writer. Um, as was uh, Cliff. As was as was Cliff. And so that's that's the sort of latest piece. It's a it's an obituary. Bill wrote for Now Dig This magazine this earlier this year. Um, so that sort of brings the the story full circle. Really, um, I'd really love to thank you. John, for coming in today and talking with us. Do you have any parting thoughts? How's, how's this been for you as an experience? It's been very, very pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> Is it bizarre to you that we're, you know, sitting here after all these years talking about the minutiae of rock writing? And so In a forth? way, I, I, f- I find that, that the, there are an awful lot of people for whom rock seems to mean, well, you know, I, I write a blog, uh, and when I write about my, my, it, when I bare my soul, I might get a hundred views. If I, if I put a title on it like The Art of the Rock Star Interview. You get half of you. 3,000. Oh. Yeah. Which I find deeply, deeply upsetting. Um. But you're always bearing your soul. So you, it, it's your view that I've over overbared, and, and that, <laughs> that that explains the, the low readers. I don't think we've got time to go into the, <laughs> on, the on the rocks back pages couch. Um, anyway, look, it, it has been such a delight and joy to have yep. you come in today, John. It's always lovely to see you. Are there any Freudian sluts gigs we should know about? You want to give a shout no, the out? Freudian, the Freudian sluts broke up about a year and a half ago because. There's nowhere left to play. 
Unless you're a tribute band. And we're, <laughs> Can we're, you be, could you be a tribute to, to the Frogs? To just an airplane. To just oh, an airplane. Just an airplane. <laughs> yeah. You could be Marty Ballon. <laughs> you know, if if you said that I that I uh, that I made fun of Grace Slick and, and Marty Balin, they weren't even the real culprits. The real culprit was Paul Kantner. Yeah. Yes. What a pompous little twit yeah. he was. He was full of it, wasn't yeah. he? Blows against the empire. One of my favorite lines in all of all of rock criticism is, somebody reviewed that in Rolling Stone. And he says, if he took handfuls of oatmeal and threw them at the, pe- the side of the Pentagon, that would con- that would roughly have the same amount of force as these blows. <laughs> well, listen. Lovely to see. You. Thanks for coming. Uh, yeah. I could do uh, an acapella version of one of one of my favorite early Zeppelin. Oh songs. yeah, well definitely. So let's let's all right. So thank you once again for coming in, John Mendelssohn, one of the greats, one of the legends. We're actually going to bow out with uh, a bit of acapella performance from John. So I'm going to hand over to you now. Thanks everybody. See you next week. That was this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast guest, John Mendelssohn, with his a cappella rendition of Communication Breakdown by Led Zeppelin. Thank you, John. Your hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find all the articles featured on the show and thousands more, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. You can find John Mendelssohn's blog at johnmendelssohn.blogspot.com. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> That's absolutely priceless. Thank you Thank so you very much, much, John. That was great. <laughs> My great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me.